This is in the DNA of how they operate. And so I think if there was going to be one kind of policy change, it would be taking a divestment approach and looking at, well, if we have this funding that we're going to invest in rehabilitation or trauma-informed prisons or whatever it might be, why are we not taking that to source to the communities in a preventative way that means that they never have to meet these institutions which cause them profound harm and cause our society profound harm? Hello, everyone. I'm sitting here with Becca Hudson. Becca, could you introduce yourself, please? Absolutely. Hi, I'm Becca Hudson. I am a researcher and campaigner around criminal justice issues. Um, At the moment, I am doing a PhD looking at mental health diagnoses in the British prison system, both historically and at the present day. Most of the rest of my work is around campaign communications, particularly to do with injustices um, as they are produced uh, and made worse by the criminal justice system. That includes policing, probation, imprisonment, uh, mostly based in the UK, but also often in connection with other organisations around the world. And I guess what drove me to focus on the kind of health elements of the way in which the criminal justice system produces harm is about a decade of work now seeing these systems which are supposed to be producing what we name justice in our society as being absolutely uh, adept at producing huge amounts of harm on an individual scale within communities and also within society and the way in which our society is organized on a broader scale. And that really has driven a massive amount of my campaigning interests and eventually has now led me into the kind of research field of doing this doctoral research. Amazing. That's that's a brilliant word there. Thank you, Becca. So kind of on to question one, uh, which we generally ask is, what's the best health-focused project you've seen or worked on? So this could be something around urban design, if you're that way inclined. It could be around uh, community cohesion or a social program that has brought about an improvement in mental health. Is there one project that you feel has really stood out that you should you think to amplify to listeners? Absolutely. I would recommend that everybody goes and checks out the Forefront Project. So the Forefront Project is a member-led youth organisation that's focus is really on empowering young people and their families and communities to fight for justice, peace and freedom. And what the Forefront Project does so well on the health angle specifically is that they're both a campaigning and a service organisation. And they understand those two things as completely um, linked in a way that cannot be divorced from one another because they understand that in order to meet the needs of the young people with uh, with whom they work, most of whom are dealing with layers of profound trauma, many of the young people they work with have experiences of youth violence and of repeat victimisation. And that's a form of trauma that is barely ever recognised by a whole host of state and local authority services that they come into contact with. So the Forefront Project provides a range of really creative, innovative support for young people who have those struggles and experiences. But they also understand that just meeting those service needs is not enough because 
all of the young people with whom they work recognise that these issues are systemic. And that's where the campaigning piece comes in, because they make it clear that actually it's not just about kind of meeting need um, on a service level. There has to be campaigning for systemic change. There has to be a recognition of the fact that these things are structural and really fighting, you know, alongside those young people and led by them to make a change so that their peers and young people in the future are not met with the same forms of harm. So it's a really, really interesting model, uh, very innovative, and they're a brilliant organisation. They've just set up last year a justice centre, which provides creative, legal, mental health and wider welfare support to loads of young people in that area. Um, So I would definitely recommend checking them out. That's awesome. Are they geographically located to one region or do they work across the entire of the UK? So they are located in northwest London. Um, they're focused in another kind of really interesting aspect of their model is that they're focused in a very embedded way within the community of Collindale. Um, so a very kind of locally built and grounded project. They Their office is on a housing estate, their justice centre is on a housing estate, and they work very locally, but they are globally focused. And so they have relationships with other youth organisations across the UK, with other young people living in similar situations in Birmingham, in Manchester, in other parts of London, but also across the globe. So their director and founder, Temi Mwale, she received a um, fellowship which allowed her to go and link up with organisations in LA, in Brazil, um, in different places around the world that were dealing with similar kind of issues that were also struggling with the issue of youth violence and coming up with new ways to meet this kind of problem. Um, So managed to be both very locally focused and grounded with those roots, but also having a global vision and a kind of openness towards international solidarity and international ways of working. That's brilliant. Thank you for that answer. Uh, It might relate to kind of question two, which we normally ask, uh, which is kind of what is the code or you know what what kind of code of policy or practice do you want to see changed you know for example how local authorities uh review planning applications or how gps will discuss matters of place or which institutional departments need to either be removed or empowered is there a particular layer of policy that you're looking at going this is the this is our holy grail in making change within the next five years. Is there one thing that you think you can point to that could open up uh, people's mind and curiosity on the work that you look into? So with regards to my work specifically, the the kind of abiding theme that I see, and I spent just yesterday, I was in the National Archives looking at you know documents from as far back as 1902, in relation to prisoners' mental health. And what was really interesting is that a lot of what I saw written in these documents from 1902 and 1947 could have been written yesterday. They was just the same kind of tone as the prison white papers that I see produced by successive governments year on year, which always say, well, we're going to meet this structural change. We're going to make sure that we transform this system. We know it's broken, but this is how it's gonna get fixed. And from a mental health angle in particular, there's always a call to invest in more training or rehabilitative services, either training existing frontline staff, hiring new frontline staff who are mental health trained, 
the production of new kind of rehabilitative courses for prisoners that always get pegged to a reduction of their risk or a reduction of the harm that they might do in society. Um, and I think there's two core things here that they continue to be denied by this kind of approach, which is A, that these systems themselves are harm producing. And I've seen this, you know, in the prison system, within policing, within probation, there is a total institutional refusal to recognise the fact that even if there is a recognition that an individual is traumatised from things that happened to them before they came into contact with the criminal justice system, there is an outright denial that the criminal justice system itself can produce trauma. But actually, the majority of people that I've worked with over at least the past kind of seven years, people often talk about their experiences of the criminal justice system as being the most profound moments at which their mental health was damaged, at which they were wounded, you know, both mentally and physically, uh, things that kind of repeat on them and come back and they see it as a profound wound that changed the direction of their life. And that's true whether somebody experienced imprisonment or even somebody experiencing repeated stop and search, for example, on the street by the police. So I think what I'm trying to say is two things. There needs to be a recognition that these institutions are harm producing and there needs to be a recognition that they have four decades, if not centuries, tried to deal with the fact that they produce harm by saying they're going to increase investment in rehabilitation, training, trauma-informed practice, etc. Whilst the refusal to recognise that those institutions cause harm is still there, all of that investment is just going to go to reproduce the same thing that it has reproduced for these decades and centuries, right? And so this is why I think that an abolitionist perspective is particularly interesting and important because from the perspective of abolition, you look at or abolitionists look at prison reform, criminal justice reform as something which expands the capacity of institutions which are causing harm in the world. And their perspective is actually how do we divest from these institutions. This is in the DNA of how they operate. And so I think if there was going to be one kind of policy change, it would be taking a divestment approach and looking at, well, if we have this funding that we're going to invest in rehabilitation or trauma-informed prisons or whatever it might be, why are we not taking that to source to the communities in a preventative way that means that they never have to meet these institutions which cause them profound harm and cause our society profound harm. Amazing. That's so insightful. I've uh, really learned a lot there. Thank you for that, Becca. Um, so kind of moving on to three people who you want to shout out, who you think that others should listen to. You know, they could be uh, just ranting away on Twitter with lots of insights. They can be campaigners on a front line somewhere. They could be great journalists. Are there three people that you're inspired by that from your peer network that you think others should go and check out and also be inspired by? Yes, it's hard to pick just three. I think um, Temi Mwale, who is the director of Forefront, is someone who I just shout out again because I think um, she is without doubt inspirational and the work that she does with Forefront is something that um, I think all of us can learn from and I learn from certainly um, almost every day. I would also shout out particularly on a kind of looking at um, 
I guess, in an urban health context and particularly the way in which race is operating in London with regards to kind of the relationship between race and labour in an urban context. I would say to look at Dahlia Gabriel's work. Um, she is doing research looking at kind of the platform, I guess, gig economy. People that are working on, you know, Uber, Deliveroo, these forms of workers and the way in which these uh, kind of employment setups are racialized and the way in which there are kind of lots of layers there in terms of mental health, but also in terms of just the ability for people to make their own livelihoods. And I think. I would also encourage people to look at the work of uh, abolitionist futures, just, I guess, linking back to my last answer. That's not a individual, but a kind of collective of individuals who are focused on creating really accessible, non-jargony, open discussion around issues to do with abolition. Um, and it's a really great project just in the sense that as a popular education model, it's really innovative. Um, and it's not even though a lot of the ideas discussed there can be maybe intimidating or daunting or academic, the way that abolitionist futures is run is not in this kind of daunting or intimidating way. It's really open. You can set up your own reading group. You can set up your own kind of stream of work within their platform if you want to publish on their website. And I just think it's a great model to kind of popular education in general. That's brilliant. Those are three amazing people. Uh, I think very close to what we try and do at Centric in the Urban Health Council was the second person you mentioned, Delia Gabriel, and the idea, I hope I pronounced their name correctly, the idea of the health inequities from those who work, the sort of the gig and essential economy. And there's so much, and there's there's a plethora of research around uh, people such as bus drivers being more more predisposed to developing issues around uh, bladder cancer because of the sedentary nature. But also as a bus driver, you are constantly at the forefront of some of the busiest and most polluted areas. And that constant engagement of your body systems through inhaling air pollution, being disposed to noise pollution, whether they become psychologically acclimatized so they don't feel it's a stressor their body is becoming stressed out so coupling that with issues around income insecurity and employment insecurity from the gig economy style of zero hour contracts there's a plethora of uh, work coming in particular from the united states so just to talk about people like robert sapolsky who's talked about uh, the psychosocial determinants of health in relationship to deprivation uh, which we relate to poverty i think poverty is an inappropriate line to use which more more talk about deprived environments but it's, it's one of our big focuses is to really amplify the health inequities that come from the gig and the service economy that to kind of service the comfortable life this great sheen of technology there are people whose health is constantly being put at a great uh unequal balance and in a, a real case of health injustice so i think uh, that's something hopefully listeners can uh, catch on to uh, i'll have links to their contact details in the in the show notes uh, so that, that's brilliant. So kind of on the last question, which is now, you know, we've gone through what have you liked out there? What do you want to see the challenge? Who are three great people who are doing great work? This is a little bit more about hope because hope is what drives us. Hope is what helps us get out of bed in the day and fight. So where would where do you find your hope that inspires you to kind of keep pushing against challenging ideas and notions? Is it 
a prayer that you return to? Is it, you know, a family member who's always inspired you? Is it a concept? Is it just waking up and seeing a blue sky and that's what you believe in and you believe in just the long-term order of what we do and you want to give back in that way? Where do you find the hope? So I think I find the hope in, um, I guess, what could be called like people power and people's movements. And I find that both in history um, and also in some of the most unexpected moments in the present day. I mean, if we look back at the kind of, you know, people might call it rights, I guess, like the kind of freedoms um, that shape our modern world, not that our modern world is necessarily uh, free in all of the ways that it should be or needs to be. But, you know, you look at what seismic changes have been produced in history and you find that it begins with people getting together oftentimes with very few resources, oftentimes with very little power. In fact, more often than not defined by the fact that they have few resources and little power. Um, And it's through that kind of collective action and building collective power. um, And, you know, often crucially with that, those sorts of international connections and the creation of international support, that's where the seismic changes in history begin. Um, And I see that Oftentimes not for months and months and months, but then suddenly there's a spark in the contemporary moment and you see this happen. I mean, even in the past year, the kinds of movements that we've seen take place across the world, you've seen the largest strike in human history take place in India. You've seen the Black Lives Matter movement totally transform, um, I guess, in many ways on a global scale, the kind of conversation around law enforcement and around race relations, but actually the actions that they took were militant and they had immediate and seismic effects across the world. I mean, I just happened to be, for my job, reading the communications policy um, for Channel 4 the other day. And they had, prompted by the Black Lives Matter movement, issued an anti-racism charter which are now all of the commitments that Channel 4 will make to be an anti-racist organisation that was published, I think, in July of 2020. And I thought, wow, you know, there was a group of people in Minneapolis who took to the streets and burnt a police station down. And then across the Atlantic, there's this kind of huge media organisation. And obviously it's not just that, right? There were mass, there were mobilisations across the UK, they were across the world. But, you know, it's like this sort of butterfly effect moment where I thought that just these ordinary people who are living, who saw what, you know, George Floyd's murder, who saw what happened, who took to the streets and put their bodies on the line, have produced this kind of seismic effect where you have a media organisation across the ocean saying, well, we've got to have a charter of anti-racism because this is the world that we live in now, because they made it that world. And I think that for me is the number one source of hope is the way in which ordinary people take collective action and produce change. Awesome. Awesome. When you think about it, everything we've achieved in our society has come from someone turning to another person going, this is wrong, isn't it? Every social liberty we have got, people have fought for. Otherwise, we would still be owned. And I think that's a brilliant thing. That's the hope that there's throughout history, the thousands and thousands of years, people have turned to each other and gone, something's not right here. It shouldn't be like this for the next generation. What do we do about it now? So that's awesome. Thank you, Becca, for that that inspiring tone. Is there any other business from your side? Is there anything you want to direct people towards, whether it just be your Twitter profile, whether it be a campaign that you're working on now or have worked on? There's kind of any other business section for you before we say goodbye. I would 
encourage people to go to the abolitionist futures twitter profile because they which is at reclaim justice um they probably retweet all of the sorts of campaigns which i think people should pay attention to there's quite a number of campaigns going on at the moment there are campaigns around um school exclusions um you know and that's a sort of huge source of what i guess we would call the school to prison pipeline in this country there's a campaign at the moment looking at the um, alarming number of suicides amongst asylum seeking children that come to the UK on, as unaccompanied minors um, and are put in horrific conditions um, and, you know, whose kind of mental health is so depleted to the point that they take their own lives. That's a hashtag 11 too many campaign. There's quite a few that I can think of, but I think going to the app reclaim justice twitter profile and just looking at the kind of stuff that they boost and retweet is probably a good first port of call to get to know about all of those sorts of campaigns amazing becca thank you very much for coming on the podcast today thank you 15 minutes with has been made possible by generous supporters and donators to centric lab via our patreon account patreon.com forward slash centric lab as well as our urban health council sponsors the national lottery community fund if you're interested in more information about this please visit urbanhealthcouncil.com thanks